With movies like Sonic the Hedgehog and shows like The Last of Us and Halo, it's easy to forget that there once was a time where big screen video game adaptations weren't worth waiting for. One 1995 film took the button-mashing, techno-rocking, plotless attitude all the way to the bank though, proving one thing. We clearly had much lower expectations in the 90s. Will time look fondly upon this tournament of champions? Find out as we attempt to prove to you that Mortal Kombat is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And I'm going to tell you right now, you better get your button mashing and your glow sticks ready to go because we are here for an EDM good time because we're talking 1995's Mortal Kombat. And here to join me to go down, you know, Amnesia Lane with this movie, joining the show for the first time, Ruben Chavez is here. Ruben, how you doing, man? I'm great. And honestly, I'm ready to button mash. I think A and B, like, A, this fits perfectly. Those are the buttons you have to mash to play Mortal Kombat. So I'm ready to talk about this. Uh, if not iconic film, infamous film. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I'm glad the movie went in a slightly different direction than the video game, at least the way I remember the video game, because the main character would be dying every 10 seconds. That would be my yeah. version of the video game <laughs> turned into a it movie. Would, it would make for a much more frustrating watch if you had to press start or put in another token every right? every couple minutes. How come Luke Kang keeps respawning? Come on. <laughs> but let There's me no ask you this. consequences in this world. <laughs> but let let me ask you this you know when we were talking about which movie to do this is the one that you pitched so what is it about mortal kombat that made you want to defend it uh well i have a lot of love for the game franchise like as as young as i am i still back home in guatemala where i'm from they still had arcades and arcade machines so when i went back there for the first time i played mortal kombat in the old arcade towers so when i was a kid i watched this movie a lot and when you're a kid, you don't understand what good and bad is when it comes to film. You're just like, oh, I, I know these characters. There's fight scenes. This guy shoots ice out of his hand. So I really love the movie. I think I've watched it like I more times than anybody should be willing to admit, even in court. And uh, the sound, I mean, the song itself, I think, is worth talking. Like, I think even just the song gives this movie like, half of its rating like the theme tune i love the fact that you're sitting there saying you know I, I probably watch this more times than should be legally allowed so it kind of feels like this is less a podcast and more an intervention for you but yeah. no honestly I, I need you to convince me to stop watching this horrible movie <laughs> there are other movies ruben you can watch something else you're, we are way past 1995 you can watch other movies <laughs> it's not uh, sinking in yet <laughs> of which you know to any right, right now listen you know all of a sudden when you realize that we're recording this in 2023 which means that this movie is 28 years old <sighs> and it definitely looks like it in some parts <laughs> <laughs> in some places yes but before we get into the minutiae of this film it is time to take 1995's Mortal Kombat and trailerize it the song you know the game which means you know more about this film than the characters in the actual movie enter the world of mortal Kombat, a contest where people train their whole lives for and others just show up for 
looking for reasons. With the fate of the world at stake, three contestants find themselves as the last line of defense against the evil Outworld Emperor, whose minion, Shang Tsung, is here to clearly just get laid. I mean, forget the world. He's looking for a good time with Veronica Vaughn. Together, our three heroes will battle faceless hordes, bad CGI, rubber animatronic monsters, and the ceaseless musings of a guy who willfully starred in Highlander 2. It's Mortal Kombat, rated PG-13 for poorly rendered graphics. That was good. <laughs> I, I I can't not pick on Highlander too. It's just it, it needs no. to be pointed out that that movie sucked more than most other movies have sucked in their entire lifetime. So I'm I'm sorry, Christopher Lambert. I have to put it out there. But Absolutely. This film stars Christopher Lambert, Robin Shu, Lyndon Ashby, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, Bridget Wilson, Talissa Soto, and Trevor Goddard. However, there is quite the almost starring list in this one here. You know, as you as you go through and you're like, holy crap, I could see some of these and some of them I just can't. Almost starring in the role of Johnny Cage, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, see, that would make sense because the character Johnny Cage is based off of him anyways in the video game. And I think they wanted to get him. But I think he chose Street Fighter, if I remember correctly. He, for whatever reason, went with Street Fighter. And if you've seen Street Fighter, you know that he chose poorly. But Yeah, it's it's funny because we have a lot to say negative about this movie, but that's not even a lateral move. He definitely <laughs> went down. Like, he, I mean, like this wouldn't have been a great choice, but he definitely made the wrong one. Yeah, when you realize that he's wearing the camo uniforms that were literally taken from Surf Ninjas that was like two years prior. Ugh. Oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. But also apparently under consideration for that role were Gary Daniels, Tom Cruise, and Johnny Depp. And I, I'm sorry, I can't see any of those three in this role. I just can't. No, I agree. I feel like Tom Cruise is the only one that would kind of make sense because Johnny Cage is a Hollywood actor that kind of is too cool for school. And I guess if you watch Jerry Maguire and all, like Tom Cruise is what a Hollywood star looks like in a lot of people's heads. But I agree. I don't think he would have been good in it. Yeah, no. It's the only one that makes sense, but I don't think so. Yeah. In the role of Sonya Blade, as played by Bridget Wilson, now Bridget Wilson Sampras, um, it was originally supposed to be Cameron Diaz. And she was cast, but apparently she broke her wrist during training. Now, Bridget Wilson had actually walked away from the casting process because it was taking too long, so she went to go do Billy Madison. By the time Cameron Diaz broke her wrist, Billy Madison had wrapped, so she was able to do this. I don't know if I can picture Cameron Diaz in this role. I agree. And I also think like, it, I don't know. It. I feel like this movie doesn't use Sonya Blade's character as well as it could have. So it would have been a shame for someone as great as Cameron Diaz to be wasted on it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Well, the funny thing is, we're talking 1995 Cameron Diaz here. So you know, I can't remember the chronology of when the mask came out. So, but it's not like we're talking Charlie's Angels Cameron Diaz. We're talking like a, a younger in her career yeah. Cameron Diaz. But also apparently under consideration were Christina Applegate, which I can kind of see, Sharon Stone, 
No. Uh, and Dina Meyer. This is the one that intrigues me. If you're not as you know familiar with Dina Meyer as, as you may should be, go find the old Birds of Prey TV series. She was she actually played Barbara Gordon slash the Oracle in that TV series. I think Dina Meyer would have been phenomenal in this role. I'm not as familiar with her, but I know she, she's in Starship Troopers, right? She plays Dizzy, like the the one of the the people in that, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, I think you're right. I think she would have been great. I, I think out of the other alternative castings, I think she was she would be the one. She'd be the pick to make it, and she might have. I think the performance was great by the actors that they chose ultimately, but I, I would have really loved to see the version with her in it as opposed to what we got. <laughs> now, in the role of Liu Kang, this has this has quite the list here. Uh, apparently, apparently under consideration for this role was Jason Scott Lee, who played Bruce Lee in Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, Russell Wong from Romeo Must Die in New Jack City, Dustin Nguyen, who played Officer Loki in 21 Jump Street, Keith Cook, who played Reptile in the film, in, in Mortal Kombat, so he actually at least got a role in it. And Philip Ree, uh, who played Tommy Lee in the Best of the Best series. Uh, they, they apparently auditioned for it, and Ernie Reyes Jr. was also considered for the role. I, again, this is nothing against the actual cast. I think Jason Scott Lee would have been phenomenal in this role. Yeah, I... I agree. And again, it's one of those things where you want to be respectful of the people that got cast. And I actually think the actor that did play Liu Kang did a really solid job. But yeah, I agree. Seeing seeing Lee's take on it, and especially like having he played Bruce Lee, and Liu Kang is based on Bruce Lee. And this movie shares a lot of similarities with Enter the Dragon. So I think it would have fit. I think he would have done really good. Well, when you consider that it was almost directed by Rob Cohen, who did direct Dragon the Bruce Lee story, it kind of makes sense. I Dragon to me is is an underrated film. I I have always loved watching that whenever it's on TV. I remember when it first came out and it was on like the movie channels. I watched it like incessantly. It's it's you know say what you will about the film, but it's actually pretty good. And Jason Scott Lee, I think, was very good as Bruce Lee. In the role of Raiden, as played by Christopher Lambert, apparently his Highlander co-star, Sean Connery, turned the role down so he could go play golf. And that he didn't want to do an action movie either, but basically turned it down to go play golf. I don't see Sean Connery in this role at all. And as we know, there there can only be one, so I guess... (laughs) (laughs) Also, I had to go, make it. Go listen to There Can Only Be One, the podcast. Yeah. It's got a great host. There you go. <laughs> it's, it's two for one, two for one. That's exactly. synchronicity. I, I, I got um, to go, get the cheap pop where I can here. It's all good. Exactly. But, no, I don't think I don't think Sean Connery would have been good at all. Like, no, just no. Uh, apparently also under consideration for the role, and this is completely at a left field, Danny Glover. I did see that. And again, the way that Christopher Lambert chose to interpret Raiden as this like, like his dry sarcasticness and kind of the humor, I could see Danny Glover's take on it as like a god who's kind of done with it all. Like he wants to retire, whatever that looks like for a god. A god, he's like, I'm way too old to protect 
Earth realm anymore, but I don't know if there's a Mel Gibson equivalent in this movie. <laughs> uh, probably not. No, uh, unless you put Mel Gibson as Johnny Cage, but then that would, you would just get all the lethal weapon jokes in there. Yeah. As Princess Katana, apparently Mariska Hargitay actually auditioned for the role. Um, obviously, she didn't get it. Uh, it went to Tulsa Soto. As Jax, which is a very small role in this film, uh, Sonya Blade's partner when they're kind of staking out the boat looking for Kano, Michael Jai White was asked but chose to do Tyson instead. Uh, of course, Michael Jai White from Spawn fame, or infamy as the case may be, however you want to look at that film. But apparently Steve, and, uh, Steve James, who played Kung Fu Joe in I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka, and Baseball Fury in The Warriors, was cast, but he unfortunately passed away before production started. It's a very small role, but those are those are big names for a small role. Yeah, but I feel like they... If, obviously, Hollywood studios always like to picture the best case scenario and the sequel was eventually made that thankfully we're not talking about but <laughs> i feel like they always knew that there was going to be a number two potentially and the jacks might have a bigger role so maybe they wanted a bigger part i think michael jai white would have been a great cast i mean he eventually did play jacks in like 2011 for the more gritty reboot of mortal Kombat that was like a web series so he got there in a roundabout way but i think uh, eventually i think yeah. it would have been great yeah he took his time with it now this is this is gonna be like a deep cut here, but if you if you take a look at the early you know introductions of the character the main characters of the movie, uh, Johnny Cage is filming this film and there's a director that uh, you know is trying to get him to go back on set. That director apparently was supposed to be Steven Spielberg. Acor- okay. According to IMDb, Steven Spielberg is actually a fan of the game. So schedules just couldn't coordinate, but it was supposed to apparently, according to IMDb, be Steven Spielberg in that chair. I just, I, I did not picture Steven Spielberg as a Mortal Kombat fan, but that would have been completely at a left. This film clearly had bigger aspirations than it was, you know, it ended up being. Yeah, its eyes were a little bigger than its stomach, it seems. Because how weird would it be if Steven Spielberg made a cameo in Mortal Kombat's 1995, a movie that largely gets forgotten, and you're just like, oh yeah, Steven Spielberg, this is what he chose. He's a big fan of this game specifically. Mm -hmm. Weird. Strange. The film was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. This is actually his only his second film. He eventually went on to go direct Event Horizon, Soldier, Alien vs. Predator, Pompeii, and four Resident Evil films. Now, I'm not going to talk about Pompeii, because Pompeii is a (laughs) volcanic piece of ash. But, yeah, I went there. I went there. (laughs) It's good. But I need to shout out Soldier here, because that, to me, is a bit of an unheralded gem. It almost feels like a spiritual sequel to Blade Runner before Blade Runner 2049 came out. Because it does feel like it would fit into that world. And I mean, Event Horizon, if you're in the right mindset before you go into the film and you know what you're walking into, because I, I, I've been duped by Event Horizon before and it took me a couple watches to get myself there. I mean, that it's not a bad filmography for a director, but I mean, no. if, if, if this is your second film, that's, that's, that's going, that's stepping up pretty good. 
Yeah, I think this is a big step up uh, considering his career. But I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think he has a great, a solid film filmography. And I mean, Soldier, I agree, is an unheralded Catholic. Funny enough, Jason Scott Lee's in that, so maybe, maybe he <laughs> liked enough of what he saw in the audition process. Like, I got another movie for you. But yeah, it's definitely a big step up. And I think again, given what video game adaptations are. He did as well as well as he could. From what I read on IMDb and other things, like he was also kind of like learning on the fly because he'd never directed an action movie before. Mm -hmm. So he got a lot of feedback and input from like the characters, specifically uh, the for Robin Shu, yeah, yeah, Robin Shu, because he'd been acting in Hong Kong and doing stunts, so helped him out a little. But learning on the job, fun, fun, fun. Which actually, I, I I have to give credit where credit is due. To Paul W. S. Anderson here, um, for someone to be sitting in the director's chair and have the humility to sit there and and listen to actors on the set give him you know pointers and props and whatnot, that's that speaks to a very open mind process in directing that I think a lot of sets and a lot of movies would actually benefit from. So you know, kudos to Paul W. S. Anderson for having an open mind. Uh, you know, we mentioned Rob Cohen as you know, almost directing here. Steve Barron, who directed 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Coneheads, apparently was also considered. Um, that would have been very interesting. And I, and I love Coneheads. Coneheads is fun. And Teenage yeah. Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, for the win. Oh, absolutely. Maybe they could have gotten uh, v- Vanilla Ice to do a song for this one, too. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, no. Now, apparently... The original screenplay definitely would have been an R-rated film because we are talking Mortal Kombat here. We're talking, you know, you know, 8-bit, 16-bit, you know, blood and guts and gore. Uh, but apparently New Line's contract stipulated that it needed to be PG-13. I, I'm not going to lie. I don't hate that. You know, as much as much as we would love a Mortal Kombat R-rated film and we eventually got a Mortal Kombat R-rated film... 1995, it needed to be PG-13. Do you think it would have done as well as it did? Were it R-rated? No, and I thought about that too because obviously watching it as I've gotten older and stuff, a part of you is like, oh, the games are so violent. Part of what you like about the games even as a kid is the fake little blood and animations. But at the time, like again, most of the fans of these games were kids and they wouldn't have been able to get their parents to take them to an R-rated movie, much less be allowed in it. Like PG-13 made sense. I don't think it would have done as well. And if we're talking, it's hard to imagine, especially post-Deadpool uh, and all these other R-rated movies that are doing well. But this wasn't a time where an R-rated movie was going to break the box office, especially one based on a video game franchise that largely kids are playing. So they made the right choice as much as sometimes the studios can get it wrong. An R rating probably would have killed this film. Yeah. And when you take a look at the uh, the box office, clearly they made the right choice. This film, according to IMDb, had a budget of $18 million and had a domestic gross of $70.5 million and a worldwide gross of $122 million. According to Box Office Mojo, uh, the week it was released, so that's the August 18th, 1995 weekend, oh God, I'm old. This film <laughs> literally destroyed everything in its wake, in its opening weekend, because it debuted at number one with $23 million. The next closest film 
was Dangerous Minds at 10 million at number two. So clearly, clearly people wanted to go see this. By the way, the only other debuting film in the top 10 that weekend, debuting at number nine, was The Babysitter's Club. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's not a very good weekend for opening. But, I mean, let's be honest. When a film with the the, the popularity of Mortal Kombat, at least as far as the video game goes, says we're going to open on this weekend, everyone just get out of the way. It's going to make money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it dominated considering of what it went up against. But the studio played it smart. It seems like they nailed every decision they possibly could to maximize their profit. Like, because Mortal Kombat back then especially, hot button issue with the games and everything. So, yeah, smart. Now, however, the critics. Oh, the critics. Oh, those critics. <laughs> over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 60, and over on Rotten Tomatoes has an audience score of only 57%, which actually surprises me. And the critic score, the tomatometer, is at 45%. Now I want I want to put this into perspective here. Okay. We're talking Mortal Kombat, and there's a few movies out there. Okay, the 2021 reboot, the R-rated one, has a tomatometer of 54%. So even that qualifies. You mentioned Mortal Kombat Annihilation earlier. <laughs> that film has a 4% tomatometer. Again, feels high somehow still. Like <laughs> <laughs> Those are like pity points right there at that point. Yeah, they're- they're just like, we got to get it up past like 0.5 or whatever it was at. We'll get it to four. Exactly. Somewhere there's a green screen artist crying. Let's give him a few pity points there. <laughs> but let's put this into perspective here because it's not like the franchise doesn't have its fans and the franchise can work. There was a 2020 animated movie called Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge. It has a 90% tomatometer. This leads me to draw direct comparisons to the DCEU versus the DC animated universe. So, you know, speaking to you, a Mortal Kombat fan, uh, which is not Annihilation, because no one was a fan of that one. You know, is this the kind of property that you would rather see in an animated feature film because of what you can do with the animation? I think it naturally suits that better because again like it's a ridiculous world and it's like it you to do it in live action you need all these special effects and stuff that are hard to pull off and i do think it just fits the world fits better in in animation i think i would prefer to see it there because even with the new it surprises me that the new one got a higher rating by the critics i wonder what the audience score is at but it because the new one kind of does a reverse of this where it's less faithful to the games but more gory, so in that way, it's faithful to the games. But yeah, I, I think largely, like some DC fans might say, like the animated movies kind of hit better and are more well done because they can just do more and push the limits of this world and explore it in a way that maybe you can't do in real life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I have gone on multiple podcasts, whether they be, you know, my own or as a, as a guest and sung the praises of the DC animated universe, especially leading up to Justice League Apocalypse War. Um, they just they did it so well, you know, whereas the DCEU was just, you know, 
you know, thanks for coming out and trying. Um, you know, kudos to them for finding a niche for the Mortal Kombat fans. But let's get to the breakdown of this film and find out why this film is actually a lot better than the critic score that it's been given. We're going to start. Let's do it. Yeah, we're going to start with Robin Shu, who plays Liu Kang. How was Liu Kang for you? Again, I think as an actor, it's kind of lacking. He's not clearly not like a top tier actor, but I think he brought what he needed to do to the role in an action sense, like his body and his physique and the way that he was able to use it in the fight scenes. Like, and because he had a hand in those fight scenes, I think he executed everything really well. And if you take his contributions to the project as a whole, I don't think this film has a cohesive fight language if it's not for him. So I think he did great as a fighter, not as an actor. If like the cutscenes were bad, but when he was doing the punches and the kicks, A plus, I guess. Like he was <laughs> solid. Like he gets a passing grade overall. Cause again, the bicycle kick looked great and all those stuff. He made it look good and he made it look believable, which I think is tough to do. I can't believe you just called the dialogue in between fight scenes a cutscene because it, it kind of <laughs> it's kind of appropriate in this case. Like, uh, skip, 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 fight, begin. Um, but you know you have to give him credit because he was also one of the fight coordinators for this. Uh, so big props to him. I I don't hate him in this role. I think he did a very good job for what he was given. I need to single out Kevin Droney here. Kevin Droney is the guy who wrote this script, okay? This is the second last film he ever wrote, by the way. The last oh, wow. film Kevin Droney ever wrote was another video game adaptation, Wing Commander. Yeah. Wow. This was also his first theatrical release as a writer. So, you know, like, clearly, you're t- if you're just taking cutscene dialogue from these from these video games and trying to turn it into a script, you might want to write a little bit better because, let's be honest, cutscenes for 1995, you know, and that era video games weren't exactly the, that's the word I'm looking for here, well thought out. You know, there's, there's a reason, I think, why video game adaptations today are better because the source material got better. The Last of Us is a phenomenal TV show, but that's because the game itself was written very well. You know, I'm still waiting for the day when we get the, uh, you know, like there are some games that need to be turned into movies and they will be, and they'll be good because the game itself is that good and it's well-written. You know, no one was, you know, popping quarters into an arcade cabinet, you know, of, of 1995 Mortal Kombat because they wanted the dialogue. You know, that's like saying you bought Playboy for the articles. You went there to go hit buttons on the on the console. But I will give no, Robin Shu yeah, <laughs> credit, right, for the dialogue that he's given, you know. And, you know, full credit to some of these actors for saying some of these lines that no one would ever say in their entire life with conviction. Um, but he did, he put in a, like a full hearted effort. I, 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 as much as I think Jason Scott Lee would be good in the role. I don't hate Robin Shua. This is, this isn't a recast no. for me. He's good. I, I agree. I don't think it needs to be recast. And I, I, he did the best with what he was given. I think it's like, you're saying like 
we live in a world, and maybe some people listen to this podcast who are younger might not picture a world where the dialogue doesn't matter and you actually get the story from the manual that comes with the game or you just like look at what's on screen and play through it. But yeah, like there was no Last of Us in 1995. Like, oh God, no. It, there was nothing that had that gravitas and people weren't trying to bring these like big cinematic almost universes in your gaming console the consoles couldn't handle it for the first part and there just wasn't the video game industry just wasn't there yet especially with all like the bubbles that had burst and like the lead up and uh, it's so it's crazy to think that he does as good as you can do with the dialogue that he was given absolutely especially 90s cheesy action movie dialogue and some of the stuff that he had to say full earnestly believing it and he delivers it very well i agree i, I would not recast uh Robin, he. I think he did everything he could possibly be asked to do. Yeah, I mean, if this if this game had the dialogue and scripting component of a game like Life is Strange, then you're going to have a much better movie. <clears throat> but if you're again, you're cribbing your stuff from 1995 cutscenes, crib better. Let's move on to Bridget <laughs> Wilson Sampras, who of course played Sonya Blade. Um, we we can take away the weak dialogue here, but I got I got issue. And again, it's not yeah. with it's not with Bridget Wilson. I actually think she was perfect for the role because we know she did her own stunts. We know she she did that with Last Action Hero. We know she's she's a a physically fit actress in that time. But did you have to turn her into a nineteen eighties hair metal video vixen at the end of this? You took a strong character. Then you tied her up to a bunch of poles, teased her hair, and put her in a skimpy outfit. You know, not that her first outfit wasn't skimpy to begin with, but you took away what made Sonya Blade good and strong and did that to her. It definitely undercuts her character. And again, it's one of those things where sometimes adaptations can get caught in doing too much fan service because that's a nod to the second game where she appears... Uh, as a prisoner in the Shang Tsung level. And it feels unnecessary because it is unnecessary. She is a strong character and she doesn't need to be reduced to that. I agree. I think her performance was strong. Again, the dialogue aside, that's not her choice, but she's clearly, like you said, a strong actress, did her own stunts. For that to kind of be a throw-in at the end of the movie, clearly just to like get people to ogle her, felt like undercutting a character that they'd done a pretty good job developing, like through her fight scenes and through just her attitude of being tough and like being able to take care of herself. Her first lines in the movie are like, I only trust one person and that's me. And they kind of shied away from that at the end with that scene, I think. Yeah. I mean, let me put this out there. Okay. I get that they, they damseled her for the end, you know, so they have this big, you know, Luke Kang's going to come and save the day and Johnny Cage is going to be there for her. No, no. Like they made a choice at one point early on in the movie, um, apparently in the original script when she's fighting with Kano and, you know, she kills him, you know, and there's, there's her, there's her revenge. There's, there's her moment. Apparently in the original script, she wasn't supposed to kill him. She was supposed to like look at Shang Tsung and go like, I can't be controlled. You know, when he's like, finish him. Um, no, she's there to kill him she killed him right like that don't take away her mission in some kind of act of defiance she was there for one sole purpose that was to kill kano problem solved plus also if you put her in like with the teased hair and all that to make her look hot you know because 1995 reasons 
I'm sorry. She looked better when she was kicking ass. You know, absolutely. Kick ass Sonya Blade hotter than damsel Sonya Blade. Just going to put that out there. Yeah. <sighs> it, it, they, they, they did her dirty on that one. I agree. I agree. That, that, that you, you can't even call it a hot take. That's the correct take. They did her dirty, and she was much hotter when she was the special forces badass who went and completed her mission. She's She got it done quicker than any of the guys did. She got there, did her thing, and left. Should, she should have left. She could have just gone back on the boat and waited. I'm cool, guys. You guys finish up your thing. I took care of business. So, yeah, I agree. They they let her down. Yeah. I mean, you actually had a strong action you know, action movie female protagonist, and then you damseled her. Bad movie, bad, bad, bad choice for the movie. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Let's move on to Lyndon Ashby, who, of course, played Johnny Cage. Uh, How was he for you? I liked him a lot. And, and maybe, maybe that's controversial, but I thought he, because Johnny Cage is such a jerk and you want to hate him, but he has a bit of a charm to him that I thought that uh, he brought to the role. I thought that uh, Ashby did a really good job personifying that character because you're not supposed to like Johnny Cage, but you do because he's a jerk and he's cool and he has the sunglasses, but I, I really enjoyed his his take on it. So, Here's here's you know, uh, 
Normally, when you have someone come in to be quote unquote Captain Quips, which he kind of is in this case, you know, uh, they're the most ineffectual character, right? They're along for the ride. They're there for comedic effect. Not him, though, right? Yeah, he's he's got the quips. He's got the, the, the comedic relief, but he's also just as effective. You know, admittedly, sometimes in a bit more of a comedic way, you know, like, you know, you know, joke about what you, you know, joke about cock punching Johnny here, but he did it and it, it worked, but it's not like he was, you know, he didn't know how to fight, right? He was there to prove himself. He was there to, to prove to the world that he was actually a good fighter and he's not the fake that people are claiming him to be. So he's got reason to be there. Maybe not the, the save the world kind of reason, but he's still there regardless, but he is, you know, he brings a levity to the situation. You know, he makes the cutscenes better, if we're going to call, you know, the, the actual dialogue moments cutscenes. But he's effective. And and you got to love yeah. him for that. Like, the other thing, too, apparently Paul W.S. Anderson encouraged a little bit of ad-libbing in these scenes. Probably because the script wasn't that great to begin with. But if that's the case, th- then you're seeing some of these, you know, the, these actors who can improv on the fly add a little bit of flavor to it i think he added the right amount of flavor it it does need a little bit of levity at points yeah and i think him specifically and uh lambert add that flavor keep the audience engaged and make the cutscene scenes more bearable his interactions with sonia and with luke kang are funny and he delivers his lines in a even when he's given a straight line that's a joke, like you get that it's a joke. He he's really clever and quippy, and like you said, an effectual member of the team. Like he affects the progress of the story. He's not just there for the joke. So I thought he did really good at bringing his personality to the character, and you you believe that he's the type of person to sign his own autograph after killing somebody and putting it in the <laughs> fire like like and i think that it takes a talent to be able to embody the character and come up with those lines on the fly to help a script that definitely needed it so he did great i i think that his quips were on point and definitely needed okay we we have to talk about Christopher Lambert now who played Raiden now so far, I've been fine with the casting. <laughs> so far. This is the one. This is the one. <laughs> this is where I have to sit here and say, the f*** were you thinking, movie? Seriously. Like, I get he's the Highlander, right? It's fine. He can do action movies. Could, could you not find someone who doesn't feel like they're faking an accent for Raiden? But, I mean... Did, did it feel odd for you with him in this role? It's definitely, I feel like it's grown on me because of my love for the movie, but it is a weird fit for a host of reasons. But yeah, the accent's kind of like, it's so overdone. Like it's it's so painful to listen to at times. But, you know, I do think in a weird way, his little dry, sarcastic humor and like a God that like, pretends not to care but does care obviously when he comes to the defense of like the, the, the fighters in the boat and when he comes and scolds them for for fighting early and trying to guide them in the right direction he's like an unwilling mentor which obviously he seemed perfectly capable of doing i think it's a weird fit i definitely think if you were gonna recast one role of the core 
and if you include Shang Tsung and Kano in the core characters that matter, he's the only one that would be up for a recast. Because I do think someone could have brought more of a actual god feel. Like it doesn't feel like he's the protector of Earth as much as he is. Again, just like a jokester who's here, like, I don't really care what happens to you guys because I'm going to do my little accent and make my little jokes and turn into lightning anytime I want to get out of a conversation. So it, it's a it's an odd fit, especially with everybody else kind of like, I would say more embodying their character. Christopher Lambert kind of feels like he was hanging out. Yeah. I mean, I I do appreciate them wanting to to shoehorn in a bit of a bigger name. You know, and Christopher Lambert is still a big name in 1995. Like, you know, I get it. He's a prestige casting, right? He's a name on the on the poster that you sit there and go, oh, hey, Highlander's in this. It's all good, right? It could have been better. I don't think it needed a prestige casting. Like, but if you were going to, I'm, I'm going to draw two names here. And coincidentally, they're actually both from the same movie as a potentially a better rate. And the first one is David Carradine, who of course played Bill in Kill Bill Volume 2. I think his, what he did as Bill in that movie would have worked better as Raiden. But to the same token as well, Gordon Liu, who played Pai Mei in Kill Bill Volume 2, you know, as a as the master at the top of the mountain who trains who trains Uma Thurman in order to for her to be able to seek her revenge. Either one of those castings would have been better than Christopher Lambert in this. Yeah, I I completely agree. And for me, if I had to pick one, I would pick Gordon Liu. Like I, because of what you're mentioning and Kill Bill and his his role in that and how he had like, and it would have been more authentic to the character of Raiden, who is portrayed as a, an, an Asian character in the games and stuff. So. Yeah, I think Gordon Liu would have nailed it, and I think that he would have brought the appropriate interpretation to the role, and it would have felt less like we cast this person so that you'd have one person on the on the on the poster that you can identify with and like can be like, oh, they're in it, so it's good. And one of the things that I was gonna say rewatching the movie that I liked about it is that they're he's the biggest name, and the rest of them were kind of just not big actors, so. It's not distracting in the, in the way that when we were doing the alternative casting, if Tom Cruise was Johnny Cage, that would have been distracting. It would have, you would have been like, this is a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. This is a Danny Glover movie. And I think that Christopher Lambert kind of becomes that. And the only reason he's not that fully is because he's in so little of it. Like they sprinkle him in as opposed to he's consistently like in long drawn out scenes. But yeah, Gordon Liu, I would like to see that. Now yeah. I'm, I'm picturing him in those scenes and, it's yeah it works it works really good in my head there was a, a wonderful analogy done on the anaconda episode that we did uh, not that long ago and you know the, the it was the concept of the shoes being too big for the role right and you know let's be honest the star of this film is not any of the people actually in it the star is the freaking mortal combat game right like people are going to see this because they like to play mortal combat they're not going there for you know deep deep analysis of of the hierarchy you know in martial arts you know you're 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 going to see kicky kicky punch punch that's about it that's what you that's what you paid your your money to go see kicky kicky punch punch but i have to say though 
if this film with this casting comes out today, this film is getting called out for casting someone like Christopher Lambert in the role of Raiden. You're right. It's It should have been someone like a Gordon Liu, and they would have been dragged across social media for that kind of casting today. Absolutely. And that th- those are the moments where it's so of its time that you can see where it would break down today. The casting of, of, of Christopher Lambert as Raiden, the bimbification or uh, damselification of Sonya Blade, like the loved character in this franchise, yeah, I, it would have it would have been raked over the coals on social media for at least those two choices in particular. Yeah. Also, I I I have to bring this out, and I don't mean to like you know piss all over Christopher Lambert here as Raiden, but this is this is more about the writing. Princess Katana, as played by Talisa Soto, her character is ten thousand years old, right? Yes. What the hell uses Raiden? Like, she clearly has all the information that they need. Who needs, you know, crazy white guy here with the hat and the, and the, and the you know, Captain Sparkle fingers? Yeah, I, that's a fair point. Again, I, that's a question I've never thought to ask because in the video games, Raiden's always there. But in the narrative that the movie tells us, like, Katana arguably helps Liu Kang more than Raiden ever directly does in the, the Sub-Zero fight scene. Yeah. I mean, let, let okay, let's talk about Talisa Soto here. Since we're talking about Princess Katana, I have to point this out, right? For the person who's supposed to have all this knowledge and be 10,000 years old and, and whatever the case, right? And just shows up like a who the f*** is this girl kind of meme kind of thing. Like all of a sudden, like she's there and we don't know why and she's not really fighting that well and for whatever reason. But... You get to the end fight scene. And by the way, again, we mentioned this film, 28 years old. So if you haven't seen it, you're welcome. But the, fi- the film is, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna sp- if, if you're this far already, the film is spoiled. I'm just going to say it. But you get to the end fight scene. Actually, I don't think we've spoiled it too, too much. But No, we've, we've alluded to fights. Yeah, exactly. Some, yeah, but there, we there, get to the end fight scene. There's punches, there's kick it, there's kicks, and there's bad dialogue. There, you're welcome. But with <laughs> with Alyssa Soto, right? And the end fight scene, which is basically between Liu Kang and Shang Tsung, does it feel like she's basically there as a color commentator as opposed to someone who's actually what's the word? Useful? Yes. Absolutely. Her character feels so superfluous to the main plot. And I read that there was originally supposed to be like a romantic connection between her and Liu Kang, which eventually comes in the games. But again, I feel like that's the kind of character that nowadays doesn't fly because people would be like, well, she's just there so that the audience have another pretty girl. Like if she's this knowledgeable and smart and strong, why is she not doing more? Because very like... Throughout the movie, besides the little bits of dialogue and, like, leading Liu Kang in certain, like, directions or whatever, she doesn't really do much. Unfortunately, they use her more in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Again, I don't know if that's a positive or a detriment of that movie, but, uh, yeah, she feels like she's announcing the fight and kind of setting the stakes. Like, expositional dialogue. She's like the little dialogue box that comes before you kick, kick, punch. Yep. She takes, <laughs> she, takes, she's, she, she takes that on the chin for us all. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to put this out there. Like, the dialogue may as well have been, Liu Kang is not falling for Shang Tsung's look like his brother Gambit. Well, Bob, going into <laughs> this game, Kang's coach has been getting him to focus on facing his worst fears. So clearly his practice has paid off. That's the training. <laughs> Stick to the game plan, put kicks to the face, and take it a threat 
spread at a time. Like that's basically what this is. It's every sports so, cliche. So you're saying they should have had a cut seat, like a picture in picture where she's there with uh, Raiden. She's like, so how did you prepare Luke Kang for this fight? He's like, well, I got a picture of his brother and just said, Lou, help me like a hundred times so that he would know what would happen in this situation. Yeah. You just need Jason Bateman to sit there and go, oh, it's a bold move, Cotton. Let's see how this plays out. <laughs> oh, oh. <that's> <laughs> Speaking of Shang Tsung, as played by Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa. Uh, I, I do apologize if I mess up these names, but I think I got that one okay, but we'll just go with it here. Um, dude is chewing the scenery and I'm kind of here for it. Oh, he's great. Again, to compare it to the other fighting movie that came out around this time since we've already brought it up street fighter he's very much uh m bison and that actor's name is eluding me right now but he's a phenomenal actor who played m bison the street fighter but they both do this like they just act their butts off like they're really giving it like every scene that shang sung is in he's committing and he's committing hard and you can tell that he's loving it I perfect like no notes no recast no notes he carries every scene he's in in my opinion oh yeah and and that's the fun thing right it's a video game movie right that I think maybe that's what the 2021 reboot got wrong it's a it's a video game movie you can be a little silly Right, you can have a little fun with this. By the way, it was Raul Julia who you were thinking of for Street Fighter yeah, in, in what was I mean. actually his last ever role before he passed away. So, you know, you know, rest in peace to Raul Julia. But it's true, right? The best superhero movies, and I, I feel like I need to be clapping back on this one here. You know, the best superhero movies are not the ones with the best heroes; they're the ones with the best villains. And Shang Tsung. For all of his scene chewery, uh, it's it's just soaking it in. He he understood the assignment. Absolutely, and to to your point, the best superhero movies have the best villains. Any good superhero movie has a charismatic and like just oh, just compelling villain. And every time he's on screen, you're in for a treat. So yeah, he nailed the assignment. I. That's that's a perfect example of understanding what your role is and playing it to perfection. I wonder too, because you know, we know that Shang Tsung is working for for the Outworld Emperor, and you know, you have to wonder what his motivation is. I'd be curious to read the novelization of this movie, um, to see if there's that kind of backstory. Because I would love to know, because he's you know, He's really fixated on Sonya, and it's not really understood why. But if we knew why, like, is this, is Sonya his reward for working with the Outworld Emperor? I wish I knew a bit more of that backstory, because it just feels like the psych-out boss fight. Because, again, spoilers, at the end, you know, you've got the Outworld Emperor who shows up out of completely nowhere. Um, also, how do you end a movie... Showing like the big boss, the Outworld Emperor, and not show the fight. You cut to credits. Yeah, well, because you have to, you have to buy a ticket to Annihilation, Jay. You gotta, you gotta rock up to the theater two years later and get to see that. I mean, here's the thing, right? Like we have mentioned on this podcast before, movies that called their shot. They basically said, yeah, yeah, sequels are coming. It's all good, and then a sequel never came. Here. A sequel came and it sucked 
ass. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not even kidding. If you, if you ever want to watch a bad movie, you know, where everything is so, yeah, it doesn't mesh. Like there's a lot here in the first movie that meshes very well. Yeah. I, again, I think they had the right combination of everything in this movie. And in the second movie, it all kind of, fell apart it's like they tried to bake a cake and follow the same recipe but they missed some steps and it falls flat so it's a real casey at the bat situation they yeah called their shot and it's good if you're comparing mortal kombat movies with recipes then clearly mortal kombat annihilation substituted the baking soda for anthrax that's kind of what oh, yeah. it boiled down to <laughs> oh. um let we don't need to talk too long about this guy because he was barely there we hardly knew ye Kenneth Edwards, who played Art Lean. This is the guy that Goru killed, and we're supposed to somehow feel bad for him because we were supposed to feel something for the character. Like, if... He gets a really major death for a character that we spend a total of two minutes with, I think, before that. Yeah, like... If, if that... If you're going to kill someone to motivate the main characters, make me give a damn about the person you're going to kill. That sh- this isn't that hard. This is like screenwriting 101. Don't just kill someone for, you know, death's sake. Like, oh, yeah. It felt very lazy. And again, it felt just like, well, this is what's going to inspire Johnny Cage in his fight against Goro. And like, it's like, like, why? Just because they said, oh, I, I know you because I watched you fight. Oh, I've watched your movies. Like, that's it. That's that's supposed to show a long-standing friendship and care. That was it. Well, for Johnny Cage, you know, liking his movies, that might have been just enough to, to motivate him anyways. <laughs> so that's all I needed to hear is my best friend. That's the first time I've heard that all exactly. day. Exactly. Oh, you like me. Okay, now I'll, <laughs> I'm going to go punch Goro in the dick. But speaking that of Goro. That might be the most accurate depiction of a Hollywood actor <laughs> ever, though, to be fair. No wonder they wanted Tom Cruise to play the role. <laughs> there you go. But let's talk about Goro for a second here. Um, Full on animatronic Goro. And, you know, apparently it took like, you know, 13 to 16 people to work him and it didn't really work all that well. But when you're watching this, you know, would you have rathered more animatronics or would you have rather they had tried to CGI Goro? I feel like CGI just of, of that era would not have held up. Like already some of the CGI looks questionable to put it lightly. I I, I feel like they had to just try more on the animatronics. I again for, for 1995, I think Goro looks fine. And I, I'm sure it was a hassle to get him to move and they were very limited. But if there's one thing that art provided us, Goro looks intimidating when he kills him. Goro gets his little scenes of I'm very strong and I have four arms, which make him seem like a threat. So I think maybe more animatronics as opposed to more CGI would have been my go-to, but that's just my perspective of it all. But, but there's the thing, right? You mentioned that, that, that art lean, you know, is reacting to him. There's genuine, you know, reaction to this animatronic Goro who does actually look pretty good. I, I'll, I'll give full credit to the animatronic team. I recognize, you know, they had a, a Jaws moment where the shark doesn't quite work, you know, and they, they couldn't bring the animatronic to Thailand where they were shooting. So they had to like basically create a soundstage in LA or something like that. But, but there's the thing. Practical effects will always elicit the better reaction from the actor. 
right? Rather than, you know, here's a marker, here's a tennis ball, react to the tennis ball. It's a big monster. Ooh, you're scared, right? Like, yeah, it it's hard because even if you know it's fake and it's animatronic, it's impressive to see something that the mind can't really wrap its brain around move, even if you know it's not quote-unquote real and at least you can play off of what its movement is if you're just watching like oh don't worry we're gonna cut this in later but trust us he's squeezing you so hard and it really hurts it's it's hard to fake that genuine reaction yeah i mean it's even with set design and and i I mentioned that for a reason here you know when you take a look at you know movies in like the the early and mid like 2000s and 2010s and whatnot there's a lot of blue screen and green screen uh sets that are being you know made around them and kudos to the actors for truly believing the world that they're in kind of thing but now you're seeing these big circular sykes that that the the set and the scenery around them they can see where they are and you're getting you know, actual natural lighting effects on their faces because it's a big giant digital psych wall. Um, you know, the the reality of of their surroundings helps influence the acting. That being said, the sets in this movie are actually really well done. Like it looks good, especially when you compare it to Annihilation, but it looks really good. Oh, they! I think they nailed the set design a lot. Again, as much that's what I think that this movie should get lauded for. It's stuff like the animatronics, stuff like uh, Shang Tsung's per- per- performance, stuff like the set. It feels like you're in this island that doesn't exist anywhere, and the the scenes inside and outside they all look great, and it feels like you're in a real place so i yeah kudos to the set team kudos to everybody who was working on the the, the, on the location and everything because it made it feel real like it made it feel like you were in the mortal Kombat. so i like i have nothing but positive things to say about the set yeah every part of it i mean we've talked on the show before uh you know on episodes like masters of the universe where yeah it's camp as hell right and especially Flash Gordon. Like, I love the 1980 Flash Gordon film. And those sets are pristine. Like, Ming's palace, Ming's Ming's throne room is just, it is a glorious set. And, you know, I don't think set designers get as much of the accolades as they should. Even with Legend, you know, that was a few episodes back. The sets were wonderful and practical. And it allowed the actors to merge themselves into this. But now we need to talk about the real star of this movie. The real star. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But before we do, I'm going to pop on over to Twitter here. Our good friend Simon Bennett at Sports Voice Guy uh, chimed in with the soundtrack is next level. Says the guy who listened to nothing but techno in high school. Also watched it in the theater. It was like Marvel on opening night. People were cheering for their favorite characters from the game. Scorpio got a huge pop. The soundtrack. This is one of the most iconic 1990s soundtracks ever. And this is in a decade where you have soundtracks like The Crow and Singles and Reality Bites. There were some phenomenal soundtracks in 1995. And this this one went through a little bit because, of course, they went to Sony and they went to Virgin and they got turned down because the labels wanted them to use bands like Van Halen and Janet Jackson. So they went to TVT Records. 
And if you don't know TVT Records, we're talking about the home of like Nine Inch Nails. Like, because they wanted an electronic sounding soundtrack. And this soundtrack slays. Oh, it crushes. Crushes. It, it Again, the Mortal Kombat theme, if you were alive in the 90s, whenever that comes on, you're yelling Mortal Kombat and you're pantomiming a karate move or you're jumping in the air and doing a kick. Like, I... It, Oh, it the test you're my oh, it's so good. And it makes you want to fight. Like I, I'm not always a I'm not a very violent person, but when I hear this, I have it on my gym playlist for Christ's sake. Like I'm always like, Yes, let's go. I'm ready. Let me <laughs> kick, kick, punch, punch. Kick How do you do the freeze ball again? Like <laughs> downright B. <laughs> I'm just But the thing is, there's some bands on this soundtrack that, you know, in nineteen ninety-five, some of them were bigger. Right, some of them were getting a lot of attention, but some of them were a little under the radar. Like, there's a band on here called Gravity Kills, and I swear by them back in the day. Like, I had one of their albums back then, and it is phenomenal. Like, if you're looking for that industrial vibe, you've got KMFDM is in there. You had three. It didn't make the CD because you know these songs had already appeared on their Ungod CD. But Stabbing Westward, oh my freaking god, I love Stabbing Westward. Like, I'm looking forward to the day when I do Stabbing Westward on There Can Only Be One. Also, you can follow There Can Only Be One at only one cast. Cheap pop. Here we go. But this <laughs> soundtrack, the fact that it peaked at number 10 on the Billboard 200 and won the BMI Film Music Award. Like, the, the composer got the got the award for that. Um, like, they they killed the music and they knew. In the 90s, you had to have a good soundtrack. This soundtrack, I think, is really the star of the film. Yeah, I think all of the fight scenes, the songs that are underneath them, and it just, it nails the vibe and nails the feeling. Like, I I shudder to think of the soundtrack where you just have to shoehorn Tina Turner saying, finish them. All respect to Tina Turner. She's a legend, but I don't need to hear her say, flawless victory in a song i don't think it would work <laughs> now i mean that being said you have to remember the tina turner of course did you know a she was in mad max beyond thunderdome but of course she did the, the, so, the soundtrack beyond thunderdome and like True. Uh, that's a great song kudos to tina turner True. for that one it wouldn't work for here True. you know but we got tracy lord so we got an actress of a different kind um exactly <laughs> exactly right uh before we move <laughs> on though from from this okay and before we get to our mvp twitter has also spoken as well our good friend greg over at movie date night regardless of the acting and special effects this is by far the most canonical faithful video game film adaptation it briefly goes through every fighter's backstory sets up the tournament and has several 1v1 fights and showcases unique character moves and fatalities and he's not wrong yeah, I again, if I I will bang the drum for this movie for everybody who loves it. I think it's a very faithful adaptation. The liberties it takes are in service of a story. It's up to you to decide whether those liberties are earned or not, but it provides a backstory and a motivation for every character. Johnny Cage wants to prove himself, thinks people don't take him seriously. Sonya Blade wants to avenge the death of her partner. Uh Raiden's the protector of Earthrealm. The two characters that does the least to set up i guess in a way that would feel faithful to the cast is sub-zero and scorpion but they look cool and they do the special moves so 
I think if you're a, that's what made me a fan of this. Like when I was a kid, I didn't care about dialogue. Punch, punch, kick. Sub-Zero freezes a guy and he explodes. Cool. Scorpion shoots a snake rope out of his hand. Awesome. Johnny Cage, like we said, punches a dude in the nuts. Incredible. And Luke Kang throws a fireball. If if you were going to write a Mortal Kombat movie, those things have to happen. And they nailed it on that front. Oh, yeah. I mean... You take a look at some of the you know the the video game movies that came out around that time. Looking at you, Super Mario Brothers. Sorry, Bob Hoskins. <laughs> you know, but and, and Street Fighter and Wing Commander, like and Double Dragon. Like there were some horrendous video game adaptations that came out in the nineties. And I think Mortal Kombat does get kind of unfairly lumped in with them. Like they they put a lot into this. People clearly appreciate it with the fact that it's a you know 122 million dollar you know global box office. Like they they knew what they had to do and they did it well. But before we get to our MVP, there's one last thing I have to bring up here. You know, anytime you say Mortal Kombat, you know you know what you have to do. Mortal Kombat. Hey, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like that's Every time. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you said every time because there can be a touch much. So I did a count. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did a count of how many times you hear dude scream Mortal Kombat. Now, I, I didn't count every time someone said Mortal Kombat, right? Because that would just be okay. way too much, right? That, that, that yeah, was, I, they, they, they did a good job of shoehorning it in. Oh, yeah. Like, there were so many roll credits moments in this film that, that yeah. But I counted the number <laughs> of times we had the Mortal Kombat. 17. Really? Seven wow, that feels high times. to me. There were three instances of it in the first minute. Three huh. times in the first minute of the film before we see a person. Three times. 17 in total. 11 just, during the credits. They, really <laughs> they really wanted to drill home that it was Mortal Kombat. And that's like, I... I watched every credit in this film counting Mortal Kombat's 11 times. Like they had a quota to fill. Yeah, the the studio must have been like, look, we you have to contractually we have to for Nether Realm <laughs> Studios. They've won it at least 17 times. So if you <laughs> if you're not there yet, please make the credits extra long and get them to just yell yeah. at random intervals. Yeah. Like honest, honestly, it was getting to the point where I was having Stockholm syndrome and I just expected that was going to end up being my ringtone because I had accepted the chaos at that point 17 yeah. times with the mortal combat here. Okay. Ruben. Be- <laughs> 18 um, <laughs> plus the two that I did. So 20. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, An even number. There we go. We're good. We're exactly. Good. Okay. It is now time. So, Ruben, who is your MVP of Mortal Kombat? <laughs> well, when it comes to Mortal Kombat, <laughs> uh, there's, I think there's a lot of MVPs, but I have to go with Shang Tsung. Like, I, I think that uh, the actor, Carrie Tagawa, did such a great job and like we said chewed the scenery committed to the role and he 
every scene he's in is made better by his presence. And if that's not an MVP, I don't know who is. This movie can hang its hat on. The villain plays a great villain. And for any video game or superhero adaptation, I think that's important. Oh, I mean, he didn't just have a meal with that role. He had a buffet with that role. Oh, he enjoyed every course. He was like, just sat there chewing it, chewing it, chewing it, chewing it. Exactly. Exactly. But he's not my MVP. I wanted to give a shout out to the set designers, though, because they were almost my MVP because they did. They 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 made a phenomenal job and the location directors like that. It looks great. You know, CG, bad CGI aside, because but the the shooting locations, the set design, it all looks great. But we cannot end the show without, you know, singing the praises of Captain Quip himself, Johnny Cage, as played by Lyndon Ashby. I'm so happy you said him because that was my second choice. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, here's the thing. When you have and Marvel has proven this time and time and time and time again. If you have an action movie, it needs to have a little bit of levity. And sometimes it's that levity that helps, you know, create not a monotonous tone to the movie. But the thing is, Lyndon Ashby's Johnny Cage isn't just there to chew bubblegum and make jokes. He's got the bubblegum, he's got the ass kicking and the cock punching, but it's, it's a complete package. He's an effective part of the trio and does the job well again i i think you nailed it he does his job well and as the trio he breaks up the constant feeling like again it's a silly movie it's supposed to be fun it's a video game movie and while in the universe that it takes place in this is super high stakes mortal (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's a tournament for the fate of the world it's nice that he's making jokes. He's asking Luke Kang to put his luggage in. It gets thrown in the water. He wants to call his agent. Uh, it's He does it all very well. Like He's not Sonya Blade's tr- travel agent. Those things give you a little chuckle and make you be like, all right, I'm on board. I want to keep watching this movie. I like what's happening. It's fun. So, yeah, yeah he, he and, kills it. And that's the thing. Johnny Cage seems like the kind of character that in the face of, you know, world destroying danger that might be his coping mechanism it creates a reality for it and the jokes aren't bad you know it's actually he's actually pretty good comedic relief i mean there are some lines where you sit there and go you read what was on the paper you should not have read what was on the paper you would have come up with something much better yeah he was just tired he's like i've done too many of my own quips (laughs) what's it say here sure why not we'll go with that yeah pretty much like words okay ruben thank you so much for this now you actually have a bunch of music on spotify out there so let us know what you got going on where we can hear it and where we can find you out there on on the interwebs okay well first of all thank you for having me on and thank you for letting me talk about mortal Kombat, which at this point is my religion um i'm on twitter at ray underscore chavo there you have in all my links, but it takes you to my Spotify, Apple Music. I have music on Spotify under the name Ray Chavo. There's an EP there that's called My Heart and My Dreams in Spanish. So just look for my name. It's easier for everybody out there that doesn't speak Spanish. Um, and it's also on Apple Music. You can find me on Instagram, again, Ray Chavo 13 there. And uh, I make music. I talk about movies sometimes on podcasts when they, list, when they let me and uh, 
I like to entertain people in all different ways. So if you follow me, I'll try to make you laugh, smile, or at least uh, question my sanity for watching Mortal Kombat for the 50th time. <laughs> <laughs> now, are, are we going to get the Spanish version of the Mortal Kombat theme song? I feel like I have to now. Yeah. Because now it's just stuck in my head, so I have to, I have to do it. <laughs> Mortal Kombat in Spanish. From, yeah, I'm going to have to do it. Well, yeah, so so look out for that. I'll share that on my Spotify soon. I'll hook up with, 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 with the soundtrack. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you ever do it, you have to drop it, and then you need to come back on the show, and we'll cover Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I'm sorry. Um. Okay. <laughs> I think that one will be so quick. Who's the MVP? Literally no one. The MVP is the credits because the movie is done. <laughs> Clearly, you knew the assignment as well. Ruben, thank you so much for this. And dear listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad that there isn't a chance in Mortal Kombat hell that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast or go to our website, NotThatBadCast.com. Let us know and we will watch it. We will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades in B movies. Until next time, Ruben, thank you so much. My name is Jay. Listeners, you guys are all awesome. Take care, everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.